Not yet. I don't. I don't know. What do you think? Is it too able? Are you able to see it with lights? It should be dark. Yeah. Okay. It should be darker. Okay. Hi, and welcome all tonight to this new writing series that I'm with us, uh, graduating readers tonight, graduating students. It's uh, a pleasure and an honor to be graduating with these three magnificent people, magnificent writers. And I'm introducing the first reader, who is Sarah Sisson. Um, I first met Sarah in the fall of 2014. And just, we just arrived in San Diego. I have come to understand her practice as a hybrid that ranges from the written page to the visual and the digital realms. Her work deals with the intersections between gender, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and technology. Sarah Sisson was recently named one of the uh, SF Weekly's Best Writers Without a Book. Her current projects include an interactive fictional audio tour to SF's Mission District, San Francisco, forthcoming from Invisible City Audio Tours, as well as her lyric novel that considers the search for community on every scale by unpacking one inconspicuous word, we. She has also worked as a designer and an editor for independent authors and publishers. She will begin working next fall towards a doctoral degree in the PhD Media Arts and Practice Program at the University of Southern California School of Cinema. Congratulations. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm really happy, Sarah, to be, to be part of that us. And I want to keep forming part of that we. Your work has inspired me to reflect on human condition and sexuality in my own work. I'm sure you, we will hear great things from you in the very near future. So let's hear it for Sarah's system. Thank you, Marco. That was beautiful. I think we should just stop there and not <laughs> to do anything. Um, so thank you all for being here. Um, this reading is a very, this is the first time I'm experimenting with this text in public, um, and it's a vulnerable text. And so I'm going to ask two favors of you all to get us in the mood here. Um, you're going to need a smartphone if you've got one, and a pen. Um, so I've been handing out slips of paper. If you didn't get one, there's a few more slips up front. What I'd like you to do is, um, I'm Basically, I'm collecting a little bit of anonymous data to kick things off. On the slips of paper, I'd like you to write down your current weight. Uh, not your DMV weight, but your actual weight as, <laughs> as you might know it, or your best estimate. Um, and or, both or, depending on what you're comfortable with, a word that describes your current mood. So current, current weight and current mood. Um, during my reading, I'm going to pass around this container, and if you could um, contribute to this, I'm imagining that this will be kind of an arc of, of our time together tonight and of this performance. Thank you for your contribution. Um, 
if you're feeling up for it and feeling like uh, adding a little more vulnerability to your day, I also would invite you to share, trade slips of paper with your neighbor before you and give it to the jar. Okay. Um, so the second favor is that if you've got your smartphone and you'd like to follow along with the reading, there's a shortened URL on the board over here that I would invite you to open up and explore as I read. Um, while you're getting started on your assignments, I just want to take a second to quickly um, express my generosity and thanks to Anna Joy, to Brandon and Ben and Camille and Tanya, all in our department. Um, also to Brett Stahlbaum in Visual Arts and to Lily Irani in Communications. Um, I feel incredibly lucky to have found a program where I could start to articulate the work that I wouldn't have had the courage to make anywhere else. Um, and I also want to give a shout out to Amy Ray Fox in Cognitive Science, whose enthusiastic advice and programming support are the reasons that this is more than just a sketch in my notebook like it was just about a month ago. Okay, let's give this a whirl. Let me try. Constellation of dark matter, a night flowering self. How do I know I am not dark matter? I'm full of it. I am sometimes, always, hardly ever uncertain, urgent, endless. This is the procedure. I've been transmitting this whole time. Today, I'm a house guest on a scale I don't know is smart. Unintentional push notification, authorship, what I, you, do to you, me, for every action, an equal and opposite Pokemon Go reward. <laughs> Self, both particle and wave. Unqualified scientists of selfhood, scroll rise. Online, every crisis is a journey. Awake, a cluster of syndromes, glucose humming search engine, New flat language user experience seen in meme. Best yoga app for making a mess of your life. Devices to get through the day. 15 ways to make it worse than it is. <laughs> Tweetable types of doom. MySpace becomes Brexit, becomes man bun. <laughs> Self is syntax. Self, a relation database. Female, female, female. Rank how often in the last two weeks this phrase describes you. Body so much larger in photographs. Seen, not to seem myself. How to fool your muscles. My dad taught me this trick. In a doorway, I pressed the backs of my hands against the frame. Wait to let go until my arms rise without me. Like if I scroll away from my body too long, when I finally stop, all bodies rush toward. How to fool your feelings. 
quantum bit folds binary upon itself, either, both, all bodies rush toward. Zero one zero one one zero 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 one one zero one 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 zero one one zero one one zero zero LOL reads like abstraction. Enough distance to refer to myself as the self. Look how little I'm asphyxiating. So obviously titrating toward the ideal. How much did you lose? In the version I prefer, I'm absent, but a conduit, poem pulled from pocket, self a recursion, self a retort, apart and alone, apart tangled, giving text nearness, we inhabit shared space, cannot prevent too much feedback, oscillating sustains. This nearness and excess luminescent, can it hold all there is to say? I forgot, but it's on my hard drive. Revisions purged to optimize, erase the partition. Cavitate tiny vacuums of info stress. Listen for joint pop, product launch. Do you consider yourself hyperlinked? Form an empty space within a solid body, just past the limit of what can be touched, a cusp, gaze, grasp, reach, grope, self a shimmer, self a spark gap. Meet six or more criteria. Still have unlimited data. How small a self in this complex. Lungs sliced out of father's back. Made to be with you everywhere. Ticking, tracking, tweeting. You can even send your own racing heartbeat. I'm the alphabet cyborg. Waiting room butterflies, decal, window onto patient pavilion. I take off the top layer of myself, breasts bared for the attending physician's research contracts. How much smaller my possible invisible growth. Nothing wrong before I started looking. River math moves maps. Bits are any two valued things. Immeasurable uncertainty, unlocatable within existing systems I keep lying beneath. False pelvis, a warm, wet blanket. Soothing vibrations electrify my groups. I'm moving without myself. Self, a relation database. Self, a sticker peeled off skin. Internet of things never leave me. Self, another. Sensor assemblage. How am I without data? Coincidence electric. Five sensors link flesh. Self a surface upon which. Item in newsfeed. No self, but moments of selfing. 
selfish, unfurling scroll. I've always been this sway, a fraction of this that catches the light. I, a placeholder for unlikely possibility, assembled molecules evading entropy. What is it in everything that breaks? Nevertheless, she transmitted. <laughs> Age, weight, gender, location, body fat, miles run, heart rate, step count, word count, progesterone, current mood, sexual activity, blood oxygen, blood glucose, Facebook likes, cervical mucus, blood pressure, self-compassion, uncertainty index, basal temperature, meditation minutes, barometric pressure, intolerance of ambiguity, migraine disability assessment, daily record of severity of problems, data points, moments of self-certainty. If you discover you have already strayed, come back to your email attached to the body of the message. Constellation of dark matter, a night flowering self. How do I know I am not dark matter? I'm full of it. I am sometimes, always, hardly ever uncertain. Urgent, endless, this is the procedure. Thank you. Maho Delgadillo is a marvel. She makes writing that pulls no punches with its emotional and political stakes and simultaneously leaves me awestruck at its precise, evocative beauty. Her thesis is a haunting, interactive engagement across languages and media, exploring the brain as a faulty organ, exploring text as a faulty transmitter of bloodlines, memories, lineage, and care. I'm proud to say that after completing the MFA, this fall she will be attending the PhD in creative writing in Spanish at the University of Houston. It has been an honor to work with her and learn from her throughout this program, and each encounter with her writing has been a joy. I'm sure this occasion will be no exception. Please welcome Maho. Hi. Um, well, first of all, I also want to thank uh, Brandon, who's been reading this thesis until he goes crazy, and um, <laughs> Professor Stephanie Jett and Gloria Chacon, who are also in my thesis committee, and Anna Joy and Ben. And 
the two cohorts that I'm kind of weirdly part of, the graduating cohort and the second year cohort at, at the MFA. And so, okay, this is the world premiere of the webpage for my thesis. Um, and yeah, I'm gonna read bits and pieces of it. Um, but yeah, so here we go. <coughs> what? Oh, yeah, I think so. Can you see? Hmm? All right. Um, machine, abstract. Retrogenesis is a theory that suggests that the brain of a person with Alzheimer's disease deteriorates in the reverse order that the brain developed from birth. Through these experiments on four elements creating a we, a part of the we is trying to understand how brain works as a link and a parasite. While retrogenesis is occurring, while you, a reader, approaches the page, labyrinth, and in the experiences depicted, which could or could not be electrical impulses created by brain, but without any reality to sustain them, try to figure out the story. And we're gonna, oh, why is it not letting me go? All right. All right, we're moving past all the things. <laughs> and here we go. One, let us say that brain is the center of the language, for the language, a sleep of the tongue in the form of placement and replacement, or replacement. Two, let us say that there is no real multitude contained in this language or in my other language. And when I say language, I mean to say that with which the we is not sharing, that which is only visible for you. A code before your eyes, a sequence of ones and zeros and tones that are leaving my throat or my fingers or my nails and become a translatable code before your eyes. This is brain's doing. Three. Let us say that when I say us, I mean a we, I mean an I, I mean the artificiality of language, controlled and silenced and, obscu and obscured by brain. And when I say us, I mean only me and the artifice of community, the artifice of a we in which I have yet to discover myself, the artifice with which I put you away only because this was made for you. Four, let us name what brain has named before us, a control center, center for plasticity. I want to say something about our relationships, but I am tangled between the concepts that will define us in the future. And when I say us, I say the we that I have claimed and conquered before, the we defined only by sickness, but also above sickness, a clue, family. Diagnosis is still a mystery. The we in and out of brain, as it is in and out of memory, as it is a cumulative and cells that die in research in an ever-present circle. I want to say that I am claiming something when I claim that the we is not a master but a host, a set of species with the same DNA being passed over generation after generation to make meaning out of bones that will break because that is the only and the one thing that bones can do when left uncontrolled. Let us say that brain cannot know when the we is breaking. Six, I want to say something but something is a system and the language and the spaces in which there is no more room to create a coefficient. And 1.2, it could be said that a body is also a conducer. This is where you stop and think about the game, about the we and its rules and how they are settled upon the screen before you. There is no clue to fulfill the space but a coordinate, another. This is where I will disclose and grab. Retrogenesis travels backwards until the tongue is unable to even pronounce the words retrogenesis. The language and what it contains and what it spills when it forgets 
retro, genesis, meaning brain forgetting reverse order, meaning this is also soon to be forgotten, meaning this is also. Let the we say mother, let the we say daughter, that we stand in front of a draw of language that will be a sole inheritance after the journeys and the traveling. The walking of the heirlooms means also a way of survival. Though we stand in front of the coordinates, making meaning out of a history of identity and death. Though we repeat after the correct tones and sparks when the machine swallows us and swallows us up and spits us out to see our brains and to declare that we host dead flowers, that we could only ever host dead flowers. That brain holds us together, claiming us hostages for the constant exercise of defeat. The buildings that were never finished soon become places of parasitism. The we that was never linked soon becomes a place of unhistory. When I speak of the we, I speak of the secrets left within inaccessible spaces of memory, languages like the Tower of Babel in which brain is being deconstructed, or brains, or heirlooms, keeping heart beating and, keeping heart beating and blood pumping, thicker than water, viscous, centrifuge, a lighting bulb that defines our separation. When I am the we, I mean to tell you that, there is, that this is an artifact to fit my own history. This is the space in which I am making my own motherland. This is the space in which I, am search, in which I search and explore and lie, where I create the we to say there is kinship in the things that have meaning for us, a clue, family, a clue, the bodies of the four of us, a clue. I am telling you some history of identity and death through the inaccessible space of memory, a clue. I am telling you a story through language, but I also need your body to fulfill my needs. I am claiming to be part of something greater, saying this is the way that holds us together. Teeth and nails and saliva to test that we belong. The blood inside our history and how it is divided. I would draw here what I know of my grandmother, a photography in which she smiles next to her husband, my grandfather, a man who smiles next to her, another history. While she's wearing my mother's smile, which is to say my own smile, a connection through the time and the space from that photography to the present, where there are no images of us. A connection to the present, where I stand before the mirror, drawing connections with red worsted over my body in a language that she couldn't have ever accessed. The map of a country she knew and doesn't exist anymore. The coordinates of her story. The hands, larger, lighter, Working, which is to say writing, which is to say archiving, to suffering paralysis. The hair, the colors, the clothing, everything that is holding us together through the helix and the proteins of our blood links. One could say I wear my grandmother as a costume, a disguise to cheat history, a code to defy diagnosis, always failing. One could say I am repeating that I almost hated her through whatever made us family. This is also a failure. Coefficient of relationship, they call it. I will draw here what I know of my grandmother, a portrait made of the blood links that are linking us together, an erasure made of the blood links that are linking us together. I trace her journey through life with red worsted. When she died, I held her body close to me, an ending point, finally, something reachable and still. I almost missed, her, I almost missed that last damp breath over my shoulder, the closeness of bodies on their bright white hospital lights. I almost went to a party, the closeness of bodies and their intermittent darkness. I almost hated her through whatever made us family, the closeness of bodies under the same names and same features, coefficient of relationship, they call it. 
Para aprender de la sangre se deben conocer los laberintos. Labyrinths exist all over the world. The oldest and most common design is the classical seven-circle labyrinth. Para aprender de los laberintos se debe conocer de, de navegación. During the Middle Ages, this design was enhanced through the addition of symbolic elements, resulting in the pattern often found in cathedrals. Para aprender de la navegación, se debe saber qué se está buscando. Labyrinths can be circular, octagonal, rectangular, or any other shape. Para aprender de la sangre, se deben conocer los laberintos. En la navegación, la sangre. En los laberintos, el cerebro. En este espacio, la memoria. Para aprender de la memoria, se deben conocer los laberintos. Este es el espacio en el que hablamos de la electricidad. Aquí es donde nosotros advierte el cambio y lo que sugiere en el ritmo, en las vértebras y en el esbozo de los lazos que nos unen. Aquí es donde nosotros tendría que elegir un género, una línea, una definición que vendrá como una provocación o un efecto o una decisión fuera de nosotros pero dentro del lenguaje. Aquí es donde vuelves a arrojar el dado, la oportunidad del azar fuera del cuerpo, la oportunidad de los números y la gravedad, donde el lector si hay un lector, necesita más pistas para decodificar la clave, para decir, estas son palabras y estos son letras, y esto tiene sentido a través de los ojos que juegan con el código. Una pista. En nosotros está hablando de la electricidad en las conexiones que lo definen, los axones y la sinapsis como métodos de identificación o de separación y los grados entre ambas, el laberinto del cerebro como un recorrido hacia la identidad y lo que contiene. Aquí es donde nuestras lenguas se reacomodan, Aquí es donde aprendes a pronunciar la palabra relación, la palabra lejanía, la palabra. Aquí es donde digo que más que una pista, esto es un secreto. La deconstrucción de la historia que no tiene testigos más que aquello que cabe en la genética y en los grados de separación entre un individuo y otro, o una individuo, o una madre y una hija y la hija de su hija. Los números que dividen los espacios en la memoria y su plasticidad o su porosidad o ambas. El espacio de separación dentro de las hélices que constituyen a nosotros unido aún después de las coordenadas, aún después del proceso de fuga. En nosotros existe en el espacio dentro del texto como un ejercicio para generar un recuerdo colectivo, algo que hable de la historia que no existe, algo que genere una historia que no existe, si hay un espacio para corromper los lazos que sea el espacio en el que caben las metáforas de la herencia que nos une, el espacio donde el cerebro controla el movimiento sobre el lenguaje, el espacio en donde caben los cuatro cuerpos y las células en común porque es el espacio de la ficción. En los otros que rige un juego lanzando un dado que no existe sobre el juego que no existe, un juego que trata de perderse en lo inmaterial del texto, como si así se pudiera olvidar lo inmaterial de los recuerdos. Un juego del nosotros para confirmar que el cerebro olvida en orden reverso a lo que aprendió. Los dados y las coordenadas que marcan los lugares de una historia huérfana, circular, omnipresente incluso en el momento de la ruptura. Aquí es donde digo la clave, la palabra. El diagnóstico que es un misterio entre mi carne, o entre el cerebro, o entre el nosotros porque nos une indiferente a las coordenadas y los caminos que no conocemos, por la historia que no compartimos, por el pasado que nos lleva de nuevo a clamarnos algo, una pista, familia, una pista, mi cuerpo, una pista, la memoria. Aquí es donde la sangre requiere un esfuerzo que confronta el paladar y repite los tres lazos que nos conforman como una plegaria ante el lector antes de deformarse en el desconocimiento o en la genialidad. Sangre, cerebro, diagnosis. And if you want to explore this thing, That is the web page, <laughs> and you can access it. It's open, it's bilingual, it's hyperlinked, and it's a labyrinth. So that's it. Thank you. <laughs>
introducing Kim Shriver. One of the first things I ever heard Kim Shriver say was that she wanted to her writing to be like glass. Not like the sound or the clarity of glass. What she said, and what has haunted me for two years, is that she wanted her writing to be like the fact of glass. Mm. This resulted in the following. Whenever I received a new piece of writing from her, from then on, I kept trying to figure out what the fact of glass was. Now, here are some things I found out that the fact of glass can portray through Kim's writing. Intergenerational trauma and how that is at play through a set of reflection and devices, hinting into the relations that are held between families and the things that are held quietly in the DNA until they come up and make her characters, who may or may not be real, reflect and trace their past. A pulsing sense of irony that pushes through other emotions while speaking clearly about them. Pain, sadness, and a constant critical view disguises, let's, let's say, our interpretation of keeping up with the Kardashians. <laughs> An experiment of recovering the traces of what is lost in the flesh, in the flesh memory of fleeing a country through sound and hypnosis, through failure and community. A house that eats young girls in film, and a house that houses young girls, her, her mother, her aunt, that is also to say her lineage, that is also to say a broken bloodline. Kim wrote and directed a YouTube series that, while in progress, nobody, not even the people recruited as actors, knew what it was about. Um, she wrote and performed in a play in which a drone is a bee who is attracted to the flowers giving birth and starting a cult, yes, with a K. She's half Vietnamese, half German, and understands some Spanish. She, likes, she like me, enjoys trash TV. And overall, she herself is like the fact of grass sharp and brilliant and also dangerous, carefully placed to reflect a twisted but for that realer version of reality. so much for that intro. I hope I can deliver. <laughs> um, thank you also to my cohort and um, my committee and um, the UCSD staff, especially Tanya. And my friends for sharing this time with me here and providing such a valuable support system through this strange but very valuable experience, um, very transformative experience. So I'm going to read a little bit from my thesis manuscript, which is called Fantasy. Um, and this section is called Disfigurements. Um, Maho talked a little bit about it, but um, basically in this section I watch a film called Haosu which is a Japanese horror movie about a young girl named Gorgeous and her six friends named Fantasy, Mac, Kung Fu, Prof, Melody, and Sweet. Uh, they all travel to Gorgeous's aunt's house for the summer and discover that her aunt is a, cannib a cannibalistic ghost. <laughs> While I watch this film, I track the recurrence of the image of the disfigured face, which seemed to me uh, to, t to say a lot about why the aunt's ghost was hungry. Uh, in watching the film, I thought a lot about my own cannibalistic ghosts and my own hauntings. Um, there are 37 disfigurements in this section, 
one for each disfigured face, and I won't be reading all of them. <laughs> so disfigurement one, is this a memoir or is this a story about faces? The face is the central organ of sense and a primary emotional expressor. Beyond being the region of the head from forehead to chin, it is also a means of identification and the surface of a thing. In particular, the surface used for presentation purposes. Basically, anything that presents itself for viewing can have a face or a facade, such as a clock, wall, or building. The word face also acts as a verb, a method of positioning towards someone or something, as well as the act of confronting or accepting something. This often requires some type of adjustment. A wall might face something, or you might turn to face the wall. The wall might have ears, paintings, or the wall might open up to be a window. The wall might be a jagged, crooked texture, and there might be a lot going on under the surface, even if everything feels light and white. To admonish yourself, you might turn yourself in towards the wall. The word disfigurement often requires violent terms to define it, such as impair, soil, or damage, and of course implies that the action destroys a unity which can no longer be. A person, I, you, can disfigure, a thing, a bomb, can disfigure, and an abstraction can disfigure, time. The code word to evacuate in Operation Frequent Wind was, the temperature is 105 degrees and rising, and was broadcast on Armed Forces Radio in Saigon, Vietnam on April 30th, 1975, alongside Bing Crosby's White Christmas. In my mom's version of the story, my grandfather, Ong, came home that day and told them to pack one bag to leave. My grandmother, Ba, six months pregnant, gathered her 14 children and ran alone in a procedure that had been discussed but never rehearsed. Arriving at the embassy, my mom, 10 years old, was so terrified of the helicopters that she went limp and her brothers dragged her across the concrete, running, and so her shins were skinned when they flew to the cargo ship. I think of that moment as a drag through the fugue. Witnesses to the fall of Saigon have reported hearing the ch-ch-ch helicopter sounds in their dreams. They call it dreaming in the wind. Disfigurement 12. I was an insomniac as a child, like all the women in my family. I would sleep all morning, even when my cousins would be awake and playing all around me. Everyone thought it was unnatural, unchildlike. I had trouble falling asleep because I was never tired and because there were sounds everywhere. My dad's parents, Omi and Peppy, lived in farm country, up north in a ranch house surrounded by cornfields. At night, I could hear bushes scratching the windows, dogs howling, and the sound of a train whistle echoing from far away. In the morning, my grandfather Puppy would cup his hands over his mouth to make a train whistle to call us to breakfast. My grandmother Omi would roll out of bed because she, too, hated to wake up in the morning. At night, I could hear her walking around the house. I could tell where she was, and she wore anklets and necklaces with bells and charms. I knew the sound of every step on the stairs, every door opening. Omi is eternally modern, utterly individual. And because I also lived with my other grandmother, Ba, being shuffled through the family unit, my youngest aunt, Yi Ling, 10 years older than me, is my sister. 
I come from a long line of strong women in patriarchal societies. I was aware that they were seen with disdain. I was aware that they were misunderstood. I wanted to be just like them. <coughs> Ba died seven years ago. She, Oni, and Yiling will be the great mother losses of my life. At night, I would listen to the sounds of Omi moving around the house by foot, by neck, because sometimes because she would sing to herself, and sometimes because she would talk out loud to the spirit of her mother, who she called Mummy, and who I have one memory of, standing in a doorway leaning on a cane. Everything in the house felt trapped in 1966, maybe because that's the year they arrived in the United States or the year they left home. Orange rugs lined the floor alongside glass bead curtains and deep red Turkish rugs. In the living room, next to my bedroom, twin blue ceramic lights gave off a hazy light. Omi, sleepless like me, would watch TV late into the night. I felt safe with her there, but when she would turn the TV and the lamps off, that's when I knew I was in trouble because the house would be quiet and dark. To me, the house felt alive. I confused it with the books I read. I imagined people appearing from secret passages behind heavy curtains. I memorized the figures and shapes in the peeling wallpaper. I talked to the figures like God. Hearing the creaks from far away, I imagined people moving in other parts of the house I was unaware of. The sounds, not the people, talked to me. I was aware of the metaphors being introduced in the white noise between bodies as they wandered from room to room. Patches in the garden contained moods I could slip through whenever I wanted to. The grandfather clock chimed every hour. My dad built that clock, and for years it laid like a corpse on his woodshop table until one year when they lifted it up and hung it on the wall. These are all somatic memories constructed before the age of 10. At that time, no one in rural Pennsylvania wanted anything to do with an immigrant family, and my family didn't want anything to do with the Pennsylvanians. Everyone was too good for everyone else. I was isolated from everything but the home, and everything outside was different when I was younger in a way I didn't pick up on because I understood home as the center of reality. When I started going to sleepovers, I was only slightly jarred by the dissonance of pancakes. <laughs> to me, they seem fancy. This leads to a clear distinction between the life in the house and the life outside. When I'm inside Omi's house, I remember the sounds, the figures, the movements, and the gardens, and it's nothing like the world I live in now. They are selling the house now, and with the house will go the enchantments a child will find in the world they build alone. Inside the house is my rich internal life. Outside is loss. Disfigurement 24. At the hospital, Ong was walked in slowly. He started talking to Ba in her coma while we fanned around him. He said that they had had 14 kids together, that they had spent 40 years raising children looking forward to the days when it would be just the two of them again, that as soon as the youngest went to college, she had gotten sick, but that in the few months of their freedom, it had been like when they'd first met, Saigon, 1953, a young nurse from the north, Haifang, and young sophisticated public servant holding hands on the boulevards, and that he feels robbed of the opportunity to devote the, to devote the rest of his life to loving her, that his only hope for the future would be to find her in the afterlife and never be apart again. I cried onto Yiling's shoulder, 
I had never heard Ong speak so much. For my entire childhood, he'd sat in a chair and smoked. I would bow down to greet him, and he would offer me an orange Tic Tac. <laughs> I walked over to Val's hospital bed. I held her hand, dry and bluish, and stroked it, touched the cold stone of her jade bracelet. I wanted to see her smile, and I knew from the way that her mouth gaped open that she was already gone. I felt that I didn't know the body in front of me. I noticed that they'd cut her hair. I laid on the hard blue hospital bed and told her I loved her and I missed her, and that I was sorry to have not gone to see her while she was dying. I said this in my very childish, childish Vietnamese, knowing I had so much more to say to her, knowing that is also why I had not gone to see her while she was dying. So I touched her hands and her hair and her face and thought that if our bodies were connected and I would think in images, then I could speak to her. I thought about me holding Ba's hands, Ba holding Elaine's baby next to a vase of roses, Ba taking a mango from her shrine to cut it up. We too who eat fruit, is the direct translation of what she would say to me in Vietnamese, we too eating it. After they pulled the plug, it took her a day to die. Yilang worried that it was because Ba had always told her proudly that all of her ancestors had waited for their children to say goodbye, and my mother still hadn't arrived. But she didn't wait. We were in the kitchen, everyone laughing, and the news that Ba had died came through the doorway, spreading from left to right as we turned to stone. In the hole left behind by the death of our matriarch, the family discussed assisted living centers to place one aunt, but none of them served Vietnamese food. One uncle had a nervous breakdown. We discovered that the blonde lady with the Bluetooth was another uncle's girlfriend, not the funeral director as we thought, when she showed up one night for dinner. <laughs> At the cremation, my mom was front and center of the sobbing sisters, clutching me while the box holding Ba's body was hoisted up into the oven to be cremated and spilled over the oceanic abyss that had long separated the two places she would call home. Disfigurement 28. Prof, Kung Fu, Melody, and Fantasy look for gorgeous. In Auntie's room, they find her in the mirror. She appears to emerge from it in a white nightgown, silent, possessed. The girls follow her in procession down the winding staircase. Her, vo her voice warping, Gorgeous says out of nowhere, I don't blame fantasy, I understand. At the bottom of the stairway, Gorgeous calls to the police while the girls hover around her. Holding the phone in her hand, she listens to the sound of people screaming and calling for help. The screams are held in a sieve, so to speak. I mean, none of the girls seem to hear or register their presence. And the uncanniness of the staging and camera work seems to suggest that this choreography occurs in a realm of psychic space. The house is catharsis, memory erupting out of the wires, out of the walls, eyes of the house glitching in climax. Gorgeous hangs up the phone. It's not working, she shrugs. For the first time in the entire film, there's no background music. Everything is silent. Gorgeous leaves the girls to look for help, closing them behind the heavy front door. The windows fly shut. I'll be right here, says the aunt's voice. Freaked out, they turn around, see nothing but a huge swelling space. In the last dream, I was looking at an apartment with Trina, 
in the East Village. <laughs> we stepped inside and it was a huge swelling space, three floors and as big as a house. High ceilings, tiled walls, heavy doors, windows cut into orange segments, rooms leading into other rooms, the sounds of the city at night through the windows. The rent was only $1,300 in the East Village. <laughs> I didn't understand, but felt I should move. My New York instinct for urgency, to act and stuff the documents in hand. I went to look around again. I was in this large living room over Broadway. I touched the wall and it fell apart. Touching it almost punched a hole through it. Then the wind blew through and I was scared. Took a step backward and punched a hole in the floor with my heel. Oh, said the realtor, this apartment is cheap, so we won't be making any repairs. Should I rent it, I wondered? <laughs> Was it worth it? Felt so cheap and big and good in a way that I wouldn't feel like such a hamster in a cage, spending all my days in this tiny locked up space, though the holes would make me cold in the winter. And so it was questionable if the house was even functional. Someone told me that the reason this apartment was so cheap was that next door was a car wash. During the day, the apartment would fill up with fumes that might or might not be toxic, which is why the realtors only showed it at night after the car wash had closed. I really wanted to live in the East Village. <laughs> Even if all of this detailing was a purposeful element of design, added to scallop space and give the impression of the camera's frame, even if a dreamy life was just an artistic effect, I still wanted to play the desire game, the surface game. I still wanted to move a couch into the middle of the room and lounge on it like one delirious image. Even if I had to wear a jacket all winter, even if there was a hole in the house bringing noise, dust, and pollution clipped onto wind capes to rest on my skin and eat at it carnivorously, digging first into my pores and then into my bloodstream, eating quietly away at my insides, so quietly I could not hear it, no. Especially not with this traffic, screaming through the window, lounging delightfully on this distressed couch, mint green. I could see myself doing something so stupid as to live forever in this silly image cold and noise and dirt trapping me silently in it like a hole, like a hole where I've buried myself alive and there are cracks on the surface of the ground where you can see me buried alive but moving, moving until one day I just break like a perfectly poached egg, raw and runny. Disfigurement 34. An ecstatic Wizard of Oz-like scene is the climax for Hausu's final chase or swallow, in which household objects fly around the rooms. The lamp swallows Kung Fu and she disappears into a psychedelic world where body parts are fragmented and characters slip into an animated ivy interior. Prof loses her glasses in the red lava coursing under the floorboards of the house. A tin can with teeth, Jaws joke, pulls her in too. In the red lava, her clothes fall off of her. She swims orgasmically and serenely, solarizes, and disappears. Fantasy floats alone on a raft. When Obayashi was filming Haosu, he worked with mostly non-actors and shot without a storyboard. Dissatisfied with their performances, he would play the film's soundtrack while shooting, which changed the spirit of their acting. In this particular scene, to simulate Prof disappearing under a pile of blood, 
Obayashi suspended the actress Ai Matsubara nude and dumped buckets of blue paint on her, which he thought would make parts of her body easy to key out and post. This method sounds like torture. The crew reported having no idea what the film would eventually look like. Obayashi reported that the special effects did not always turn out how he had intended. Fantasy fights for her life on a raft of blood, screaming for her teacher, her knight, to come save her. Mr. Togo, he promised. Mr. Togo, whose arrival at Antis had been delayed due to blunder after blunder, rolls into town to jazzy music. The farmer selling watermelons, voraciously chomping on a slice, says to him, the girls were eaten, they were eaten. Do you like watermelon, asks the farmer selling watermelons, stomping like a sumo wrestler. The stomp is a call to the gods. God is in the ground. Are you there, God? No, says Mr. Togo. Thank you. reader, Marco Antonio Huerta. This introduction feels very special to me because I introduced Marco at our first year reading, too. We did a hashtag poetry reading. Um, <laughs> when I first met Marco, it was the day before the first day of school. We had both just moved to California, and I had a broken heart. You didn't care. <laughs> but you did often drive me around to the beach or to readings or to eat he was incredibly generous uh, he gave me advice about teaching letting me look over his work like I was a bad student we spent hours and hours just processing or maybe gossiping about the place we had found ourselves in when he first introduced himself, he said he was interested in the language of social media, which often meant the language of internet subcultures, and his own myths stated that it had killed its lyrical self in 2007. Today, that lyrical self is back. <laughs> in reviving his lyrical self, he has interpolated poetry with nonfiction and has spent a lot of time deeply investigating his politics but the heart of his investigation remains the same. It asks about the boundaries of communities, who's in and who's out, how communities are networks of exclusion, but also networks of support, spaces of joy in a violent world. His work memorializes spaces that cultivate kinship networks between queer bodies of color, spaces which are spiritually strong but physically tenuous. In writing about these spaces, he reactivates them again and again. In writing, he points, condemns, mourns, and protects. As he writes, there are odd times in which survival comes to you in the form of a text from a friend asking you out to spend a day at the beach. I'm honored to be in Marco's circle and honored to introduce him today. Yeah, uh, thank you. I don't know how to proceed after that very generous introduction, but I guess I should read. 
please don't leave don't leave the premises without taking um, uh, a copy of the scene of the Zen that was put together by Calvin and Zach. So it's right there. Please take one before you leave. And I must say as well that I was struggling in terms of uh, thinking what is it that I wanted to read today, tonight. But I feel like um, my options were limited to something very morbid and very sad. <laughs> and something that could work um, through other levels. I also want to thank Camille Forbes, my advisor who's right here. Uh, and thank you all for coming, all my friends and all my the people that I care for uh, who are right here. So um, this is not what I had in mind to read tonight, but... I think it's gonna, we don't need to turn it off, I think. No. Do you want but it on or off? I, I would like to project something, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's, really it's gonna come. It will, yeah, it's on. But it's, it kind of like takes a while. And I also want to uh, thank all the faculty of the program for uh, all the discussions that we've been having, all the uh, all of the talk about and around our work, which I really, I deeply appreciate. <laughs> so here's a <the> hashtag. <laughs> no pin dick, twenty seventeen after travel bans and threats of world building. The lesson I learned in the 90s, it is perfectly okay to be gay as long as you're white. <laughs> That's what the TV and the magazine said back then. And it was the fuel for my desire as well. I still have to figure out which was it. Did I want to become that kind of acceptable gay man who was not only celebrated because of his queerness, but more than that, was asked to appear on a TV show because of that very same queerness? Did I want to possess that body instead, make it my own? Was, I co was it coveting or was it lost? To picture your pink lips rubbing, rubbing my lips again, nibbling on your pink nipples, to hold your torso that seems sculpted from marble, to picture myself licking the thick, round, dark, pink cock head of yours, not caressing your blonde silky curls again anymore. To remember how excited I was whenever you chose me at the bar, the disco, the bathhouse, or online. No more rimming your pink asshole while clipping your pink balls in my hand. Not your pale milky skin, translucent paper exposing veins and arteries in blue, purple, blue-green, and dark red under its surface. Not your occasional moles or freckles here and there, not your constant craving the responsibility to save me, help me, lift me up, not your over-appreciation of my brown cock, no more Mexicans are hot, nor I only date Mexicans, no your reasons why you'll probably never date a Latino, 
No, I don't find it funny that you're constantly chasing the burrito. Just like I didn't find it funny when you decided to codename me El Chapo while speaking about me with your friends. No to your never-ending mantra that navigates as a ghost within our LGBTQ communities. No fats, no fums, no Asians, no blacks. No to when you told me that yoke when you learned I was an international grad student at the University of California. You must be the smartest person in the village. Mm. To which I replied, I'll let the people at the village know what, that you said that. <laughs> which I believe I'm doing right now. <laughs> I'm writing a piece, I'm reading a piece about all the praise you have given me. No to the moment when you try to bond, to bond funnily by telling the old as hell joke. This is America, guys. We speak English here while sitting on my lap because our friend was giving us a ride and we had packed his car. And also, you need to be bold in order to dare tell me the ancestral joke while standing on ancestral sacred Kumea land of the dead. And while standing on the lands where the forgotten dead were buried by the thousands, the sacred unmarked graves of the Mexican-American war casualties. No to when you ask why would race or nationality be Im important in choosing your date. No to that time you were joking about Donald Trump's words by saying Mexicans are only interested in fucking white ass. Precisely at the moment in which I was fucking your white ass. <laughs> or when you were deeply offended because of the grab them by the pussy thing, but not because I got to be called a rapist. No to when you told me I was being too harsh when I said Amy Schumer is a white feminist. I used to date Hispanic, guys but now I prefer consensual. No, not anymore, not again, no, not ever again will I wake up to the sight of your excruciating whiteness. This feeling that even the air around you is harming your precious skin. The redness on your eyelids as a sign of disease. No to when you ask, why do you have to make such a big deal about Orlando? No to that mad, hilarious moment when you thought you'd heard me say anti-Anglo when all I did was talk about my writing as, as a bilingual practice. No to when you assume that I, that, that, no to when you assume what should be done in my best interest, like that time in which you were too quick to judge Mexicans and other people's homophobia from your pristine and centered white American queerness. Must we just talk about queer American whiteness instead? I say no to your monopolization of queer suffering just because Matthew Shepard and Brandon Tina were white boys that you could easily relate to. It's harming, it's erasing the suffering of other queer people of color. Do you know how many black and brown bodies have been imprisoned tortured, executed, or murdered on account of their sexual orientation? Did you know that Mexico is the second most homophobic country just behind Brazil? I say no to your active suppression and erasure of these other stories of homophobic violence. No to the time when I was called at for having the wrong sources and got told that things aren't as simple as I put them. 
when I said there, there has been a lack of Latino or Hispanic representation. No to the time when you told me after looking intently at my face, you sure have some white or European in you, you must, while you were trying to ask me about my background. I say no to your understanding of the word sassiness. <laughs> no to the time when you just didn't ask and thought you were entitled to grab my cock and my ass if they were yours. No to the time when deemed appropriate to call Juan Gabriel, when you deemed appropriate to call Juan Gabriel a Mexican version of Liberace. No to when you thought I was asking for your generosity when I was demanding your respect. No to when you thought it was a compliment to tell me how articulate I sound. No to the time when I realized in horror why you were my beauty standard. That time when the girls at my school were weirded out because I told them I liked a guy who was doing gymnastics in one of her spelling books. <laughs> la Encyclopedia de la Vida Sexual depicted the bodies of whites and whites only. Why would it show other kinds of bodies instead? The moment when you realized that the beauty standard was set with you at the center and us, the others, happily fluttering around at the borders, awaiting for the moment you would grant us your attention. No to that moment in which I learned that my taste in men, my fetishes, my attitudes towards dating were all products of the society that I grew up in. I am complicit in this system of superficiality and exclusion that is making too many gay men insecure, discontented, and depressed. No, to be told again and again that there's something wrong with my body, that my belly is too prominent, that I'm not hairy enough, that I'm not manly enough, that my ass is not bubbly enough, that my skin is just not quite the right shade of white. I know boys who long for surgery. I know boys who have thrown up after meals. I know boys who can only have sex if they're wasted. I know boys who feel too insecure to have sex at all. No fats, no femmes, no Asians, no blacks. No, you don't get to call the shots anymore. No, you don't get to occupy that place anymore. No, you don't get to take this body. Denying you entrance is a radical act of self-care. No more microaggressions within the limits of a healthy homosexual relationship between two consenting adults. Why would anyone want that? I have learned to love and respect my body, this brown queer body in front of you all, and the other black and brown queer bodies around me. No, you cannot enter. I said no. Thank you.
Amazing. I mean, I can believe. I, I just, you guys blow my mind and inspire. Um, and you've done such great work in the school under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Um, wonderful to see you today. And um, I can't wait to see what you do next. It's going to be great. Um, so they, uh, the graduating MFA uh, class this year will take some questions from you. Will they? <laughs> they will. Um, if you have them. Um, I think you probably do since I've told you to have them. <laughs> um, and they'll all come up and, um, you know, we'll spend another 15 minutes in case you're, you've got a meter out there or something, another 10 or 15 minutes um, for questions. about that that's vulnerable connects with something in someone who receives it that's also vulnerable and that that is even if the material is negative or anxious that there's something positive in the acknowledgement of that and that transfer um, so it's kind of like a I guess a, a blind faith in that that keeps me able to try that and to think of it as an, as an experiment. Um, something that we, we did a thesis workshop um, in the winter together where we read everybody's drafts. So something that came up a, for a lot of us was like, we like to be evasive even when discussing our own lives. So I think we've all chosen some kind of distancing mechanism that allows us to both frame and filter our work, but also give us a way of like, not just being like, this is my life from A to Z, but you know, allowing us to frame it with something else, yeah. I would also uh, say that, and having Ken right here, who originally started, uh, Ken is part of our cohort, but for many reasons, but light uh, is uh, not really with us today. But I'm so happy that you're here. 
Ken started writing a memoir and our workshops, and we started workshopping that material. And I do understand that uh, eventually we all got <laughs> contaminated in that way. <laughs> um, talking about what we know and talking about, uh, especially in, term, in, a, in a moment in which our bodies and our faces are uh, important, are in our stake, I must say. Uh, there's no other way to uh, talk about this world if we don't talk about it uh, from the position in which we're standing and from the experience that we have of this very horrible but sometimes nice world that we live in. Well, for me, definitely, there is a sense of evasion in what I'm doing. And so I was so evasive that I even went to neurobiology classes to learn how the brain works so I could talk about the brain instead of talking about my own history. Um, but then relating all those notions, all those scientific languages into the story that I was trying to tell was like super useful for me. And Another way of being evasive, particularly in this space, is using my two languages. I'm Mexican, so I'm bilingual in Spanish and English, as you probably noticed. And so <laughs> there is a political process into choosing what gets shared with whom. And that is very important for me in the process of making this particular work. <laughs> I didn't realize that we were, you were all reading today, so it was really emotionally intense for me and exciting and wonderful. Um, but the thing I was really keen into, and it's something I've talked to, I think almost all of you about in, in writing, and something I share and thinking about is when do you break down the I into the we? And um, I was thinking about the types of language all of you used, like maha with porosity, right? Or, you know, where the body, Sarah, becomes dark matter. Or, you know, what you allow in or out. How you remember your hauntings. Like, all these things that overlap were really amazing to me. And I wondered, um, and I guess you sort of answered, you had a group thesis workshop. But, you know, this, um, this is something that a collaborator with my writing and I were Skyping about today, which was... We started writing together and realized that one of the liberatory things was to say, this is something we saw as an individual moment. And what happens when we release that boundary of individuality in terms of writing, which is seen so much as a limited authorship? Um, so do you think that through this process of doing these things together that you've started to meld somehow in terms of voice? And how do you see that? Do you see that as something you want to continue? And the overlaps that you share in terms of this space that you've inhabited where you talk to each other so much about your writing? I don't know if that question makes sense, <laughs> but well, I think um, something that's really nice about this program is that you have to take five workshops together, which is a lot. And it's a very small program, so particularly when you're taking them in order, for example, three in one year, or even two consecutively, you really start to create a dialogue um, within that group. 
and a, not only a dialogue about writing but about reading and that for me has been a really transformative part as a writer and a reader in this program um, and it's informed me a lot I, I mean because I didn't have that before this so I can't it, it's like impossible for me to talk about like the writing that I've done in these three years without thinking about how much has been influenced by that environment um, and those conversations and like little things that I've probably been jealous about in everyone's writing that I've like taken <laughs> and tried to put into my own writing. Um, but and then I think eventually you forget where that came from. So it's just there in your work. Or maybe it's like been in the back of your head, like how can I do this for myself? And then one day it just um, happens. But then also when I talked to Brandon about the eye in my um, thesis, he's I was trying to make this unified eye, and he said, whenever I try to make a unified eye, I always have a dis, I find it's dis ununified or fragmented. And I was like very, I like, I was very comforted by that. I understood that as a mixed race person, or that there were a lot of ways in which my eye already was fragmented. And so I was like, I could work with that instead of trying to, yeah, think about what a unified eye might look or sound like. Actually, I was just talking to Neil about that today. Uh, I think I understand, and this comes from uh, Chen Chen, uh, boy who lives in Texas. Uh, I cannot understand who I am uh, without my writing. And I, or phrased it differently, I would say that the different aspects uh, that form uh, part of what I, of who I am come together in my writing. And, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm often a white Mexican, and then when I'm here, I'm something else. So uh, it all comes together in writing. And I feel like this is pretty much a question that I have received constantly, right here, like by, li by just living here and being in this program. And I would also say that uh, you mentioned reading. And I think this exercise of reading is only possible right here um, because it, this program labels itself, and I think it's the only one in the country which is actually cross-genre. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, a very different thing. I, I have been, I'm known much uh, more as a poet in Mexico, and I'm, what I'm writing right now is prose. But the, this result wouldn't have been possible if I didn't have uh, these readings by prose writers as well as poets and people with different backgrounds. So, so I guess, and I think, of course, I want to continue. I'm, I'm excited. I was telling Gina uh, uh, that this is pretty much a different way. It's another part of the brain that works through prose and the one that works with poetry. So, I think it's pretty much uh, exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to ask a question about <laughs> you talked about invasiveness in your writing. Generally speaking, when you're thinking, when you talk about aesthetic distance, you're talking about the reader's relationship with the text. And this evasiveness is sort of, uh, it seems like kind of a process of creating a 
the aesthetic distance in the process of writing. And I'm wondering whether that double distance does not enhance the kind of mystery in your writing because it has to be filtered through evasiveness and then the aesthetic distance. Could you say something about that? Because it seems intriguing when you say it that way. Um, well, I think that, uh, I mean, I think that if that's the effect when it's good, it's probably desired for me. But, um... I'm thinking especially your writing, actually. I mean, I think for me, if I'm writing about something that feels close to me, factually close, or like a close experience, I feel really creeped out by any kind of intimacy, <laughs> like, with the work, or when I, if I just, you know, a first draft, I mean, I usually hate, because it's like, it feels like a diary entry, and so I think that's why I tend to establish some kind of distance, so that I can get to a point where it doesn't feel like me anymore. And that maybe if I feel like a little bit of a stranger to it, then that's maybe what, why, or kind of mystery that I feel. I don't know, Maka, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I think the process of putting something into writing is never innocent. It's not that we're putting ourselves there. We're putting a facade of what we want the reader to understand. And so the evasiveness process is present there always. But it's more clear as a process when we're trying to write from a point of uh, memoir or, or you know, factual things or our own stories. And so it's not it's not accidental. I think it's completely designed. And that distance then creates yes a mystery, and that mystery is desired from us as writers. I think. Yeah, I would say I don't know that there's necessarily a distinction between aesthetic distance and evasiveness because as you're saying that even the like diaristic version is not me it's some fragment of and I think this goes back to Kat's question about like this that, that I never existed in the first place and so I'm really interested in how am I being influenced but also the flip side of that what's my impact and my responsibility and that tension all the time so it's not so much evasive as experimenting with the edges or the permeability of those edges. Mm -hmm. So could I continue just one more? So in your case, uh, that evasiveness, it, but the lens to it is, is also a process of construction because the mystery of putting it together. So, so it's not only an aesthetic distance in terms of the reader and the text, but the construction itself becomes a mystery in, in the production. Absolutely. I think that's a pretty interesting comment that you made about how it's not innocent, that it's deliberate on the writer's end, because I mean, I'm in a personal narrative workshop right now, and there are a lot of things, I mean, my own personal piece, I was very, very open about um, what I was talking about in it, but even then, there's so many things that are left out, and I think, I, I think it's, 
it's just a really good point to bring up though is that even with memoirs which I've, I've read memoirs by people and autobiographies and there is a lot that's left out um, you can have a, a, an autobiography that's like 300 pages long and then you find out from another source that there might have been something not mentioned in there so yeah it's <laughs> really great point it's so it's kind of like this misconception that people have that oh because you're making a, a personal piece we know who you are now and it's like no you only know a fraction of the writer and you, and you don't know them as a person typically and they're right and their writing itself doesn't show everything so yeah it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> can I just add to that don't even know the writer. You yeah. know what the writer wants you to know. You yeah. know what the writer architecture or work puts on the page, and the, what the writer's work wants to do. And writers are terrible people who want to make people feel a particular way. And maybe you don't even know that because it's you your do. well. <laughs> you do. But I think I don't know. I think there's a lot more responsibility on the reader and their interpretation and the associations that they're bringing to it, which I have no control over. So how I might, I had an experience in workshop this quarter where I thought this line was being, in my head it resonated a certain way and nobody else thought that. And that was, I learned something about what I had written because of so I think it's like knowing that you're not going to have as much control as you might think. Right. It's like a playful space. With the responsible with art, with the work that you put on the page. So of course. Like you decide to put on the page. It seems too with your, especially with your two works, where there's these choices, right? Where uh, uh, I, as someone going to your websites, uh, as a reader, I can make these choices and go into certain aspects of the labyrinth or go into certain aspects of of um, the, the data readout that's happening on the right side of the screen in, in your work, Sarah. Um, so maybe the question might be, in terms of all of your work, in terms of cross-genre, in what ways, um, this is something that we've talked about before, in what ways does your work um, activate the, the reader and, and make the reader more of a writer in the process? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I th- uh, as much as possible, I would hope, without having it be kind of throwaway, without absolving myself of my own interests or responsibility in it, I am really interested in, I, you know, I struggled a lot with even how do I put this on the page for the graduate division to sign off on my degree when in my head this text is not linear and it is, has lots of inroads or has points where you might space out and open another tab and come back to it and that's part of an expression of what I'm the kind of effects that I'm trying to create and what I'm interested in writing about so it's like I've been thinking of it more like curating an experience or making an invitation than this is the text and it should be read in this order and I'm going to give you like two choices and that's it, right? Um, But I don't know where the edge of that is. It feels very much like then, well, how do I, is it mine? How, what's incorporated into it? If like somebody in the audience is reading my piece on their phone, 
while I'm reading and then it gets boring and they check their email. Is that email like part of my text in a way, right? right. right. I don't know the answer, but I'm interested in that question. <laughs> I've had the privilege of uh, listening to your earlier works from two years ago. It was Kim, Sarah, I don't think I no. got to hear you as well, but I also got to hear um, Marco's work, and just to see the growth in your writing yeah. is remarkable, and yeah. it's really inspiring. Okay. Um, but I was wondering, in terms of your processes, like, what changed, you know, did you have a shift in inspiration, a shift in um, things you felt like you needed to write about? Well, I I can only refer to a moment I was uh, very close to the appropriating strategies that came up uh, in the writing scene at the turn of the century. But uh, from the U.S. perspective, hmm. and when I realized that these conceptual writers were actually using techniques that have been used for centuries in Latin America, and that they were just framing them as innovative hmm. and new, and especially when I I received the news of what Kenneth Goldsmith did uh, with uh, his performance oh, of Brown. Michael Brown, right? Mm -hmm. Ed Brown. Uh, whoever's not familiar with this is uh, a reading uh, based on the autopsy reports of Michael Brown's body. And the poem ended with a description of his penis. Um, whenever he did that, there was a shakeup in the literary community, and uh, there was a lot of talk in terms of the ethic of the avant-garde, especially. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I couldn't go that way anymore, that I needed to move in the opposite direct direction, because I was contributing to my own demise, to my own uh, oppression in that way, by validating their work and by uh, not only that, but also celebrating uh, this work. Mm -hmm. So the opposite direction was first to resurrect my lyrical self. <laughs> <laughs> and actually um, embracing this materiality of myself. Like, uh, I, I understand that right now I'm doing, what I'm doing with the, this memoir, because uh, that's, that's what I call it. Uh, is that uh, it's moving away from these explorations uh, and I'm talking about a, a time frame of 10 years mm. actually yeah. and uh, it has been I've, I, I'm, to understand that I have been complicit and to uh, do something about it it's a privilege mm. I wouldn't have realized uh, and I wouldn't have come to this new process, which is kind of like curating the self without the program support and uh, the time that the institution has allowed me to think about these processes as well and to think about writing as, as part of an ethical uh, decision. Uh, like you said, like there's there's nothing innocent uh, that, that comes out in, in writing. So we need to be accountable 
I guess that's pretty much. Uh, and of course, the the sense of uh, community, in right? Communities, I must say, in writing. Uh, I also understand that I'm not interested in the poetry world in the U.S., but I am also not interested in the poetry world in Mexico right now. So for many reasons, but especially there's a crisis uh, in both. And I think uh, things need to change, and I, I guess it's little by little. I think the question was for you. I thought it was for all of us. Yeah, my work. I I came in thinking I was working on a book which was already like a <laughs> book. I'd left another book behind, and this was the book. And this that you saw was not any of that. Um, I, yeah, I think that this program is, was really instrumental in giving me kind of permission to start with what did I want to make and then figuring out what to call it after. And that really shaped my work in terms of not starting from, okay, I need to write a poem or a story, but how do I mess with the format? I can start from like, oh, to make this thing that I imagine I actually have to go learn to code and I actually have to go like take a class in VR and having a space where that is seen as part of writing and part of, I don't know, it really changed everything for me. Like I would not be making the work that I'm making at all. Um, so for my first year reading, I gave a PowerPoint lecture. Um, and um, I didn't want to do a reading because I didn't really want to read out loud. And I wanted to do like a performance because I felt that that was more, I don't know, I, I was just more interested in that, in sharing my work in that way. And um, I'm, I often just like cannibalize a lot of stuff that I've written into various different forms. Um, but I was really interested in this idea of the imposter. <laughs> I felt like an imposter in this new space. I didn't feel like smart enough and I was overwhelmed by all of the new information. So I wanted to give a lecture that gave power to that feeling of not knowing but possibly having something really important to say. And that was kind of what I was trying to channel in that lecture, which I which I thought of in my mind as a failed lecture. And I always planned for it to be a failed lecture. And then I started realizing over the years that those interests were actually about, like, that it was actually an interest in, like, the agency of disenfranchised voices or um, ways in which an imposter has the power to displace and so in this text, I was really interested in these figures of the young girls that were getting eaten by ghosts. Um, and, and in general, I think a lot of the work that I've done here has been interested in the voices that nobody thinks have anything to say, um, but are saying something very important. So I guess it just got more, I just realized that more, I guess. 
Thank you so much. What's your advice to big young writers in the room who are just setting out on the path of deciding whether or not to be a writer? thinking about getting an MFA, that you should definitely take time before you do that. Yeah. Um, and I, I took six years, and I think that was pretty good, and I did appreciate the opportunity to be here. And I think, and I worked through a recession um, for six years, and it sucked. And so I was just really happy to be in a place where I could just teach and write. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> and I'm not sure that if you haven't had that experience that you would you'd be like, what am I doing here? I'm wasting my youth or something. <laughs> but I, I mean, I was like really into the opportunity that I got. And I think that um, taking time off to really commit to that decision is good. I took 10 years off um, and I wholeheartedly agree and those are like those are the years that made me a writer it was deciding this is who I am no matter what job I'm doing or no matter what's being published or is it it's like this is the thing that I would be doing no matter what it was kind of the thing that I couldn't see was who I was because it was so close to me already so have, like making that space where you could be that person anyway and find your community um, regardless of the MFA like it, it I, I I quit my job in a recession with my tiny bit of savings to finish a novel in three months it took six months and I put it in a drawer after but that was the moment that I like had invested in myself and said I'm a writer I'm doing this it doesn't matter what happens with it and so that doesn't, that had to come, I feel like, from me and not from getting a story place or doing all of that work, which I'm still not even sure. I'm, you know, the, I can do that work. I, it does, that part doesn't get easier, maybe, but it can't come from that anyway, I guess I would say. I guess I would say definitely read, definitely write, talk to people, but I think go and leave, get out of college, and like go and see what the world is like. Um, I'm the youngest in the program, actually. But still, I'm from Mexico. I was working since I was 18. I was working for a newspaper. So I got to see a lot of things before coming here. I mean, like, oh, wow, this is so peaceful and boring. 
that your daytime should not have anything to do with language. That your daytime job is not anything about language because otherwise you won't get home to write. If you write all day for a government or for a newspaper or something else, you get so tired of looking at a screen or, or taking a look at work. So try to find a daytime job that has nothing to do with writing. Something to write about. <laughs> Thank you all again so much. I think this is a good moment for the MFA to take a picture of everyone because we're all here. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
terrible. I did not expect that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but this is American. 